Pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Hallelujah. I want to talk to you this morning about a subject that I don't believe is talked about enough in the church. We talk about it in this church, but as much as we talk about it, I still don't think we talk about it enough. It's called the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. A lot of, preach, a lot of preachers won't preach on the blood. Uh, a lot of people have problems when you preach on the blood because they feel uncomfortable. They say it's not a subject that should be preached about in church, but it's a subject that should especially be preached about in church. And hopefully I can shed some light on that this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Leviticus, the 17th chapter, and the 11th verse. Leviticus 17:11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So atonement, another word for that would be like a reconciliation. It causes us to be at one with God once again. Uh, sin separated us and the blood gives us atonement, brings us back. And that was in the King James. I want to read it in the New Living Translation. It says, For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. So it's the blood in exchange for a life. And you know, Jesus was scourged or whipped and crucified by the Romans. And I don't know if you realize what a Roman scourging consisted of, but it was a, a whip that was called a cat of nine tails, and it actually had nine leather straps on it. And on the ends of these leather straps was uh, fastened uh, sharp obstacles, maybe pieces of glass, sharp stones, things like that. And when they swung that whip, it would not only cross your back, but it was wrap around sometimes, and those claws would dig in your chest, and they'd pull that uh, whip back purposely and uh, with force, and it would cause the skin to be ripped. And so every t for every one lash you got from the Roman soldier, it would be nine lacerations on your body somewhere, on the back, on the front, on the neck, on the legs, and they were merciless, merciless. Uh, in their application of that cat of nine tails. It was a horrific, painful experience. And they would actually tie you to a post so you couldn't move, and you'd be bent over that post, and they just lay it on you. It was just merciless. And, but between the scourging and the crucifixion, Jesus shed all of his blood, and he did it for us. Uh, it wasn't just like a cut bleeding or something. It was a shedding of all of his blood. And I remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I think it came out in early 2000, maybe 2003, 2004, something like that. And we went to see it as a group, as a church. And I remember after watching it, it touched everybody's hearts. And we actually had to minister to people in the, 
the in the church there, or in the movie theater there because they were so overtaken with compassion and uh, crying and everything. And uh, but later on, one of the complaints about the movie was that there was too much blood. It was too bloody, and uh, uh, they could have cut back on the blood and some of the bloody scenes. And uh, so they put a lot of emphasis on the blood, and rightly so. I personally don't believe they showed enough blood. And uh, like I said, that was the biggest complaint. And yet these same people that were complaining about there being too much blood or it was too bloody or too gory or uh, too hard to watch are the same people that would watch a movie that has all kinds of bloodshed in it, a romance movie with blood-sucking vampires. And then they'd play these video games where people's heads are getting cut off and there's blood poured out all over the place, and that didn't bother them. But when you attach it to religion or attach it to the church, then all of a sudden it's bothersome. And that's the part that I don't get. Uh, but almost everything that comes out of hollow and weird, I mean Hollywood, is uh, bloody. It's gory. And people seem like they, it's entertainment to them. And now that type of blood is, bloodshed is not entertainment to me. As a matter of fact, we make it a point not to watch anything like that. And, of course, we don't play any video games and things like that. But yet, uh, people are uncomfortable when you talk about the blood, and yet it was the blood that was given in exchange for our lives. Uh, an exchange was made, an innocent life for our guilty lives. And that uh, sacrifice was made because of the blood. It was accepted because of the blood. But there's yet entire denominations where they won't even teach on the blood. Uh, the congregation doesn't want to learn about the blood. And uh, I think that they're missing out on quite a bit because this is a blood-bought church. This church is based on the blood of Christ. And uh, so if anybody thinks the passion of the Christ is too bloody, I got news for you. It's like I said, in my opinion, I don't think there was enough bloodshed. I don't think it showed enough blood. I don't know what it is exactly the human body holds. I think I read something briefly said it could hold like six quarts uh, for the average human which is, you know, 180 pounds, 150, 180-pound average human, six quarts. A big old boy like me or Brother Darrell, we probably got a couple gallons flowing through our veins. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you say six quarts and, or maybe even two gallons. You spill two gallons of milk on the floor and see what a mess it makes. Uh, even six quarts, you, you spill six quarts of motor oil because that's probably got the consistency of blood, maybe a 10W30 or something. And I'm telling you, you got a mess on the floor. That's a lot of liquid. And so uh, that's why I say I don't think it was enough. And, you know, Jesus was a pretty, had to be a pretty hefty guy, I think, because he drove those money changers out of the, I single-handedly drove them out of the temple and, uh, with a whip. So I'm thinking he had to have at least six quarts in his body, maybe even a little bit more. And so that is going to cover a lot of area. So like I said, I know the movie was bloody. He was covered in blood. There was blood all over the place. But I don't think it did justice to what Jesus actually shed and what he suffered. But we read this morning that, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So in other words, no, no blood in your body, no life. You die without blood. And it's the same thing with the church. It's a spiritual organism, but it's based on the blood. Without the blood, we'd have no church. The church would be dead. Amen? Yeah. 
So there's a lot of importance in the blood that we don't realize. And, uh, you know, there's what we ref is referred to by Bible scholars, a scarlet thread that runs from the book of Gen Gen Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, a scarlet thread. And that scarlet thread represents a bloodline. And, and you can find in every single book of the Bible a piece of that scarlet thread running through it, that bloodline running through it all the way to Revelation. You cannot find one chapter in the Bible that doesn't mention the blood. And so it runs throughout the entire Bible. And uh, just as blood uh, gives our human body life, life, the blood of Christ is what gives Christianity life, and it's the same blood that keeps Christianity alive. And it's spoken of over 400 times in the Bible, over 400 times. So this is not a minor theme. The blood is a major theme in the Bible. And without the blood of Christ, the gospel is dead, the church is dead, and there's no such thing as a Christian. That's how important the blood is to the church. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, and we're going to be celebrating communion today. And Jesus said, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, for the remission of sin, for the remittance of sin. And Paul tells us in, one, in Colossians 1.14, and almost all things are shed by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And he also explained we have redemption through the blood, even the forgiveness of of sins. So Peter added in 1 Peter 1.18, we are not redeemed with silver and gold and precious stones, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's what redeems us. You cannot buy what we have. You cannot purchase with any kind of worldly riches what Christ purchased with his blood. And then the Apostle John agreed with Peter and Paul when he wrote in 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. How much sin? All sin. And the early church understood the blood. There's 22 sermons recorded, 22 recorded by four preachers in the book of Acts, and they all give the same message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the death, of course, is the shedding of that blood. And, of course, that's the gospel in a nutshell, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They understood that his death and the provision of covering by the blood was the main ingredient of the gospel. And the Greek transliteration of this implies the idea that it was payment to cover sin as well as hiding it from God's sight. See, God is a holy and just and righteous God, and he cannot look upon sin. He cannot fellowship with sin. Sin has to be uh, taken care of. It has to be remitted before there can be any fellowship. Adam and Eve had fellowship on a daily basis with God. He walked with them in the garden during the cool of the day. And yet when they sinned, that fellowship was broken. Why? Because God can't fellowship with sin. And so... They, they were, uh, what the Bible refers to, they entered into spiritual death, which is not a cessation to exist, but it is a uh, separation from God. And, and spiritual death, in my opinion, 
is worse than any kind of physical death that you can suffer because of what comes after physical death. If you die in spiritual death, you'll find yourself in a devil's hell with no retribution, no way of getting out of it, no remission then. Amen? So uh, God declared in Romans 6.23, for the wages... Or the price of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wages of sin is death. In other words, sin has a price and somebody has to pay the price. Someone has to die. An innocent life has to be given. Like I said in our opening scripture, an innocent life has to be traded for a guilty life. That's what it boils down to. And we see this very uh, early on in Genesis chapter 3, in verses 6 and 7. It says, The woman was convinced, Eve, she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So there's the, uh, the pride of life the, uh, uh, in, in that statement, the pride of life, the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And so this is how the devil tempts us. He, he tempted her like that. He tempted Jesus the same way, and he tempts us the same way. And so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they f sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, see, they had never felt any of these things. They never felt shame. They didn't know what nakedness was until sin entered into the world. And then their eyes were open. Uh, she got her, her wish by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now she knew what evil was. Now she knew what sin was. But now there was a price that had to be paid. And those fig leaves represented man's feeble attempt to cover his own sin through his own works, because that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to cover their nakedness, cover their sin, and they tried to do it with fig leaves. And, you know, works are good. There's nothing wrong with works, but they should be a result of your salvation. You should do good works anyway. And so, you know, like I said, works are good. But uh, religion thinks if I can just do enough good works, I can make it to heaven. And they try to work their way to heaven. They try to earn their place in heaven. But you can't buy heaven. You can't earn a place in heaven. You can't do enough good works to get you to heaven. Uh, there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And so God showed Adam and Eve in verse 21 that would never be acceptable. Their fig leaf religion would never be acceptable. They could never make their own way to heaven. And in verse 21 it says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, uh, it, it's something that people overlook when they read this passage of Scripture, but in order to get those animal skins, it's obvious that two innocent animals had to die in order to provide those skins. But God wasn't just uh, interested in uh, covering Adam and Eve with an animal skin to keep them warm or protect them from the elements. I mean, at least at that time, there was perfect weather. They were naked all the time. They didn't need a covering. But sin caused things to come into the world, and now they needed a covering. But the thing they needed more than warmth and protection was the covering of blood, and that's what those bloody animal skins yeah, I'm talking about blood this morning. Those bloody animal skins 
provided for them not only the protection they needed, but it covered them, it covered their sins, at least temporarily. And, you know, God is telling them the only thing that will help you now is by covering yourself with these two bloody skins of the two innocent animals that I had to sacrifice on your behalf. Adam, because of your sin, death now entered into the world, and this is what death looks like. And that couldn't have been too pleasing to Adam or Eve. And so instead of God seeing their sin, he's seen the blood of those innocent animals covering them. And he allowed them that blood to cover their sin and caused him to look over it. So the blood protected them just like it did the children of Israel in the, in the book of Exodus chapter 12. When the blood of an innocent lamb was applied to the doorposts and lentils of the Jewish homes. You know, God says, take a lamb, a specific lamb, a lamb without blemish, a lamb in its first year, and slaughter that lamb, take the blood, and sprinkle it on the doorposts and lentils of the house uh, with a hyssop branch. And when the destroyer comes in tonight, and he's going to destroy the firstborn of every household in Egypt... He will see the blood and pass over you. And so that's where we had uh, the uh, law of Passover. And we still celebrate it today. We're going to celebrate it with communion. That's the Christian Passover this morning. And that's what we're going to be celebrating here in a little while. But when the death angel came, seeing the blood on the doorposts and lentils of the Christian house, told them that those people on the inside of that house are untouchable. They're protected by God. And when God sees the blood, he causes the death angel to pass over. Amen. And so, you know, we still apply the blood to the doorposts and lentils of our heart. When we were born again and accepted Jesus Christ, we did a spiritual application of that blood to the doorposts and lentils of our hearts when we became Christians. And, uh, you know, uh, we believe in the, the uh, pleading of the blood. Pastor Ed and I plead, P-L-E-A-D, plead, not bleed, plead the blood over certain things for protection at times. You know, we plead the blood over our children, our grandchildren, our cars, our house. We go on vacation, I plead the blood of Jesus on this house, you know. I plead the blood of Jesus on our car. I plead the blood of Jesus on us. And we do it for protection. You know, there's no magical formula or incantation. It's just that spiritually, we are applying the blood of Christ uh, symbolically to our lives for protection. The same protection that the children of Israel got from actually applying the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their house. And so it, it, it was actually that our faith is bringing protection through the blood. They believed the word of the Lord, and they believed it enough to act on it. And by obeying the Lord's commandments to put that blood on the doorposts of their house, they were protected from the enemy. So God said in Exodus 12 and 13, But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So I can't overemphasize the importance of the blood. Uh, if, if there was this much power in the blood of an animal, how much more in the blood of Christ, God's precious son? But even more important is that God, instead of seeing our sin, 
sees rather the blood that was applied to our lives, and he causes the enemy to pass over us. And how many is looking for the enemy to pass by? Like uh, Talisha always says, scoot. Just scoot on down the road. Don't bother stopping here. Scoot. And so we get the enemy to scoot by applying the blood to our lives. And, and you know, we, we still speak of being under the blood. And people ask us sometimes, uh, you know, uh, w- will a certain sin cause me to go to hell? It will if it's not under the blood. And we encourage people, get your sins under the blood. And otherwise, in other words, confess your sins. Get born again. Get the, you know, the sin of the first original sin, get it under the blood. And then get your sins under the blood so that you're safe, you're protected from going to hell. And, and you know, uh, in other words, if it hasn't been forgiven, you're in danger. It's not under the blood. If Once it's under the blood, it's, con- it's uh, forgiven, and uh, the judgment will not fall on those who have placed their trust and their faith in Christ and accepted him as their Savior. There's a danger outside of Christ. And, and I want us to get a more comprehensive understanding of the blood. So we're going to take a closer look at what some of the Bible writers had to say about the blood. And as we look closer at the blood, one of the things we'll find is that the blood of Jesus is perfect. It's flawless. It's pure. And Judas, the one who betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver, and and the Bible even describes that as the price of redemption. Silver was the price of redemption. And, And we find that in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, in the building materials. And it also represented redemption. But it's called innocent blood. Innocent blood. See, not just any blood will do. It has to be the blood of someone that's innocent, an innocent animal, uh, innocent, uh, innocent son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul said that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ was sinless. Uh, anybody that thinks he wasn't sinless is mistaken. Christ was sinless. He had to be sinless in order for that sacrifice to be accepted. If Christ wasn't wasn't sinless, that sacrifice would have never been accepted by God, and we'd still be lost today. Pilate said he could find no fault in him. God himself said that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. It's the blood that makes us the righteousness of God in Christ. And Jesus himself said, which of you accuses me of sin? And they couldn't answer because he was sinless. He didn't have any sin in his life. He was spoken of as holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And Peter said, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And then John added, in him is no sin. Is there any doubt in your mind that Christ was sinless? No sin. And after looking at it through the eyes of these different writers, we get a more complete picture of the fact that Jesus was absolutely sinless, perfect, spotless. He's described as the perfect Lamb of God, spotless Lamb of God. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God who take away the sin, not the sins, the sin of the world, original sin, the sin that Adam and Eve uh, committed in the garden. The Lamb of God is the sacrifice of God, the one who will shed his blood for us. That's what John was saying. Now, Jesus was born of a virgin, 
and the virgin birth is absolutely essential to the salvation of our souls. There are certain religious groups that call themselves Christians, and yet they don't believe in the virgin birth. And without the virgin birth, Jesus would not have been sinless. He would have had original sin. He would have had the sin of man flowing through his veins, and he would have not been accepted by God as the ultimate sacrifice, and we would all still be lost. So the reason the virgin birth is so essential and a must is because the bloodline is passed down through the father, not the mother. It's passed down through the father. The natural father would have imparted the sin nature of Adam into Christ. That's why Joseph couldn't be Christ's natural father. It had to be a divine in intervention of the Holy Ghost. And, and so it had to be a virgin birth in order to provide redemption because sin would have been found in Christ otherwise. So the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin, and because of that, he did not have original sin flown in his veins. Matthew quoted Isaiah the prophet. He said, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You know, even Mary says, you know, uh, how can this be? You know, how could I be pregnant? How could I have a child when I knew not a man? I've never been with a man. And so she was thinking carnally, but uh, God is thinking spiritually. He's thinking from heaven. And, and even though she didn't understand it, she says she just submitted to the word. And she says, so be it unto me according to thy word. And so she just accepted it. And when she did, the word was planted on the inside of her. The seed was sown and she became pregnant with the Son of God, bypassed the natural birth of a father contributing to it, and therefore bypassing passing the possibility of original sin being placed into her body or in her, her blood. Yes. Jeremiah, the prophet, hundreds of years before, spoke this about the virgin birth. He said, the Lord hath created a new thing upon the earth. How many of you know? How many of you know that there had never been a virgin birth before this. So if there's going to be a virgin birth, it's going to be a new thing. And so the Lord hath created a new thing upon the earth. A woman shall compass a man. In other words, a woman is going to get pregnant without a man. And it certainly was a new thing for a woman because uh, for someone that had never been with a man before to give birth to a child is something new and unusual. Amen. So the Adam nature is passed to the offspring by the line of the man. But because this was a virgin birth, there was no impurities in the blood of Christ. The, the original sin, man's blood, was passed over. And everything about Christ was perfect, including his blood. Amen. So his blood is pure. And one of the reasons that uh, a lot of churches believe in using grape juice in the communion service instead of wine, like other denominations, is because wine has to go through a process of fermentation, and fermentation has to use bacteria in order to turn the grape juice into wine. And bacteria is not pure. And so, I mean, you know, we use grape juice in this church, but we're not that dogmatic about it because it's like I've always taught. Uh, the juice, whether it's grape juice, orange juice, or anything else, is just symbolic. So we don't get hung up on these different things about, well, the, you know, wine has got 
bacteria in it. It's not pure, so it can't represent the blood. We believe that any kind of juice can represent the blood. It's what's in the heart that counts, not what's in the cup. Amen? Amen. So, you know, we can agree with this partially, but we're not going to get hung up on it. Same with the bread we use. It's unleavened bread. That little wafer we have is unleavened, uh, which reminds me, I don't have one either. Okay, it's, un, it's unleavened bread because leaven is also bacteria, and in the Bible it's a picture of sin. And so we, we use bread that doesn't have yeast. But if you've got bread that's got yeast in it, regular bread, a cracker, that's fine. You can take communion with it. We're, uh, again, we're not getting hung up on that because it's what it represents, not what's actually uh, the ingredients that's in it. But anyway, for... Uh, they believe that everything that's holy, Satan has a counterfeit for it. And I do believe that as well. Satan has a counterfeit for everything that comes out of heaven. And uh, they say communion is no exception. But grape juice in its purest form is symbolic of the blood of Christ, just as the bread without leaven or yeast is symbolic. But uh, we're not going to get hung up on that, like I said. What you have this morning is fine. Don't throw it out. We still want you to have communion with us. Amen? Amen. But anyway, uh, you know, they have this uh, process called uh, chelation or dialysis. And it's when somebody uh, has problem with their kidneys and they can't purify the blood, then they send it through this process of, of dialysis. And what it does is filters the blood, purifies it, and then when it goes back into the body, it's able to uh, fight off germs, and it, they, it has the right antibodies and all of that. So anyway, that's behind that. that that's one of the things behind that, and I'm just going to skip over that part. But the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sacrifices to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He not only cleanses our uh, souls, but he also purges our conscience. And there's no other kind of blood can do that. You know, you, you don't have to be uh, condemned because of sin. Once you're washed with the blood of Christ, it purges your conscience. It purges you. It purges your conscience. So you're not condemned all the time with sin. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation in those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of the blood. The blood purified us, just like the dialysis machine would purify somebody's blood. But when the pure blood of the Savior is applied to the sinner's life, it purifies him and provides cleansing. That's the importance of the blood. And John said the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It cleanses us. It purifies us. Peter said we're not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And because it is pure, it is purifying. Amen. You can't get purified with something that isn't pure. It has to be pure in order to purify you. And so we have to believe that the blood of Christ is pure because it's purifying to us. The blood is also perpetual. Its power is never ending. It never changes. The blood of Christ was once and for all, the ultimate sacrifice for everyone for all times. And 
The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were continuous year after year. They had to make atonement year after year, and they did it through the blood of bulls and goats. But it all pointed to the sacrifice of Christ and his blood being shed for the remission of sin once and for all, never having to be repeated again. You can't crucify Christ anew. You can't sacrifice him again. He's one sacrifice for everyone for all times. Hebrews 7.27 in the uh, International Children's Bible says this, Christ is not like the other priests. They had to offer sacrifices every day, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Christ never had to offer a sacrifice for his sins because he was sinless. But Christ does not need to do that. He offered his sacrifice only once and for all time Christ offered himself. And then in Hebrews 9, 12, it gives us a real picture of the blood sacrifice that Christ provided. I know I'm giving you a lot of scriptures this morning, but like I said, it's mentioned over 400 times in the Bible. I'm just going to mention a few this morning. But it tells us that it was neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The tabernacle in the wilderness, Solomon's temple, the priests, the sacrifices, uh, that were offered on a daily basis with the priest going into the most holy place and sprinkling the blood of an uh, innocent animal on the mercy seat and receiving atonement for the, for the children of Israel every year uh, that would last for the entire year. He had to do it over and over and over. But Christ uh, was a type of that sacrifice. But Christ actually entered into the holy heavenly or the heavenly holy of holies offered his own blood once for the sacrifice of sin for all mankind for all time, and God accepted it just like he would accept it on the mercy seat in the tabernacle in the wilderness for the atonement of sins for one year. But Hebrews 9:26. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Can you imagine him not only uh, presenting blood on the altar, but presenting his own blood on the altar, that's mind-blowing in itself. I mean, Christ, dead, uh, crucified, dead, buried, rose on the third day, took his blood and took it up into heaven and sprinkled it on not only the mercy seat in heaven, but also the New Testament was there, and it got sprinkled with blood because it is an everlasting covenant ratified by the blood of the sacrifice, which was Christ. Hebrews 10, 12 said, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. When you sit down, that means your work is complete. And when he sat down on the right hand of God, it meant that it was not only complete, but it was accepted by God. His sacrifice was accepted by God. So the death of Christ sets into motion a continuing cleansing for those who trust him, those that are born again. And we are given the gift of eternal life that he purchased with that blood. Thank God. Amen. We are washed once for all and forever. And Jesus said it was the blood of a new and everlasting covenant. And that's what we're celebrating today. And our faith is in his blood. And it, and it settles it forever. Amen. 
The blood is powerful. John wrote in the book of Revelation, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. You know, it takes amazing power to do that. And and, uh, we're told that we overcame the wicked one by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And the only reason we have that testimony is because of the blood that was shed for us on Calvary. Now, I know six quarts, seven quarts, eight quarts, four quarts, just a gallon of it is a lot of blood to shed. But Jesus had to shed it all. It said he poured out his soul. And that means everything was poured out. But you know, all it would take to save the world, to save the universe, to save anything that's in existence is just one drop of that blood. One drop would have did the job. And yet he gave it all. Hallelujah. Powerful blood. So uh, we talked about Adam and Eve's fig leaf religion, which is basically a false religion. And it's always denied the blood and its power to cleanse us from sin. Uh, I think I could say this, but the founder of the Christian science movement, have you ever heard of the Christian science? He said the material blood of Jesus is no more effective to cleanse from sin when it was shed upon the cursed tree than it was when it was flowing through his veins. That's blasphemy right there. That guy is lost. The one who started that religion is lost. He himself is lost along with everyone that he can convinced to believe that lie because no other blood would have cleansed us from that sin. And then a so-called Bible teacher in Texas, I could give his name, but I won't. I'm getting warning looks from my wife. I better scoop. But anyway, he said the red liquid that ran through the veins and arteries of Jesus' mortal body is not related to our salvation in any way, shape, or form. He's lost too. <laughs> and God knows his name. But woe to him that is going to cause harm to one of Christ's little ones, his children, by teaching them that lie and getting them to believe it. But these teachers and many like them stand in complete opposition to what the Bible declares. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So either you're going to believe a man or you're going to believe what the Word of God says. Hebrews 9.22 says the cancellation of a debt, charge, or sentence. That's the definition of uh, remittance or remission. It means acquittal. And because the blood is permanent, it brings with it permanent acquittal to our sin. And, you know, in modern society, we all are familiar with court terms. I I told my wife I could be a lawyer just from watching Law and Order. I learned enough from Law and Order to go in the courtroom and fake out the judge and the jury. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) But justice isn't what we need when it comes to sin. We need acquittal. Amen. We need that sin to be remitted, remission. Uh, We need mercy and acquittal. And and acquit, like remission, it's a heavy word. In the Greek, it means to pay off, to free, to clear, to absolve. And it has a far-fetching, a far-reaching meaning extending from the past all the way to the future. In other words, when we accepted the blood of Christ, it forgave our past sins, the sins we are currently living in, and all of our future sins. 
I mean, you talk about acquittal. That is some acquittal there. And, and when people are acquitted of a murder in a court of law, their charges are remitted and it can never come back on them. It's called double jeopardy. And a lot of times you'll hear the, the lawyers, the prosecutors say, uh, I want this with, with jeopardy attached. In other words, they agree to the uh, court's decision, but they want jeopardy attached because they think some more evidence is going to come up in the future and they want to retry that case based upon new evidence. But if a case is dismissed with double jeopardy, it means that even if they find out that he was guilty, she was guilty and did commit the crime, they can never prosecute her for that crime again. Double jeopardy. Hallelujah. Our sins were acquitted with double jeopardy. Yeah. We can't be tried for them again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> but you know, it's like, like I said before, it's not about justice. See, when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to God's forgiveness, we don't want justice. When it comes to God's judgment, we don't want justice. We want mercy. We know we're guilty. I already know I'm guilty. I don't need no court to tell me. I don't need to be convicted by a judge. I'm guilty. I confess. I plead guilty. Now I want mercy. I don't want what I deserve. Amen? You don't want what you deserve because we deserve a devil's hell for what we did. But we've been acquitted. Hallelujah. Double jeopardy. Hallelujah. Mercy, not justice. We need our sins forgiven and forgotten. Hallelujah. Thank God, like I said this morning, his mercies are new every morning because we need them every morning. And not only our past sin was covered, but also our present and future sins are under the blood. As long as we continue to trust in Christ as our Savior, his blood cleanses us from our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. And God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. He promised never to remember them again. God said, I will remember them no more against you forever. If you confess a sin and then you turn around and confess that same sin an hour later, God's not going to know what you were talking about. That's how thoroughly he forgets about your sins when they're under the blood. And Jesus' blood covers all our present sins. Hallelujah. I mean, it continues to atone for our future sins. And, and this is not to say that we can go ahead and sin. I'm not saying we have a license to sin because it's under the blood. Because a truly saved person won't have that kind of attitude. He'd be looking for ways to please, not looking for ways to sin. But we know that despite our best efforts, we do mess up and we do sin. We missed the mark, right? But thank God we don't have to get saved again. You only get saved one time. You only get forgiven of sin one time. But as you walk around in this world, you get dirty. That's why the priest had in the, in the tabernacle, in the outer court, they had a, a laver. It was filled with water. And before they could go in and, and minister as a priest, they had to wash in that laver. Every time they went into the tabernacle, they had to wash what? The dust and the dirt of the world that got on them as they were ministering in the world. And so they would go to that laver once a year. It was called 
in the New Testament, the washing of water by the word. Hallelujah. 1 John 1 and 9. That's our New Testament labor. We go to 1 John 1 and 9. He says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not that we have to get saved again. Once we, uh, that's one sacrifice one time. We don't have to get saved every time we sin. We just need to wash the dirt of the world off us, of us once in a while so we can be effective ministers for Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We already had an overall bath. Remember Peter? He, he didn't want the Lord washing his feet. And Christ said, if I don't wash your feet, then you're no way clean at all. And Peter said, wash me all over then. See, that was that one-time washing that we need with the blood. And then after that, it's just a daily cleansing. Just got a little dust on me today, Lord. Forgive me. And he cleanses us. Hallelujah. Forgives us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Trying to wrap it up here so we can have communion. But we got to stay under that blood covering. We got to keep ourselves under that blood covering. You know, it amazes me how people remove themselves from the blood covering. There's people belong in this church this morning that have removed themselves from the blood covering. They're running around out there unprotected without the blood covering, without the covering of God on their lives, and they think they're safe, and they're not safe. And I'm not condemning anybody. I'm trying to encourage them. Get in church. Get under the covering. You need to be under the covering of a church. You need to be under the covering of the blood. Hallelujah. You need to be under the corporate anointing that will protect you. Uh, under a pastors that will pray for you. Amen. Watch for your souls. Uh, the Bible calls us shepherds of your souls. We're to watch over your souls. We pray for you. We keep you covered. But you know what? We can't cover rebellion. If you go out there on your own, you're on your own. Amen. We can just encourage you to stay under the covering. Stay under the blood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's dangerous to walk around without it. But anyway, I tried to paint a picture of the blood today. And I hope you see Christ's blood as something that is valuable. Something that is precious. Something that you cannot put a price on. Something that he freely gave for us. He was the innocent sacrifice for a guilty party. And we were the guilty party. And that while we were yet sinners, still guilty, Christ died for us. He shed his blood for us. The blood that cleanses us from all sin. And without the remission of sin, there, or without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But more important than that is that God is the fact that God can see its importance. Because if he didn't, then all he would be able to see is your sin. God respects the blood. God understands how precious that blood is. And when you're under that blood covering, even though you're guilty of sin, God only sees the covering. God only sees the blood that's covering your sin. And when you step out from under that covering, then God can see your sin. Amen. You don't want God to see your sin because then he has to judge it. Amen. And you don't want judgment. You want mercy. And that mercy is under the blood. So make sure you're covered. 
And it's not like a cheap paint either. You know, some of that paint back there, we might have to put a second coat on some of it. But with this blood, it's one coat guaranteed coverage. Hallelujah. Never have to be painted again. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.